In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues and the many fields of knowledge, all are steps on the path of omniscience. May these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. Please accomplish this. Please make it happen. Please. <laughs> okay, so tonight is the last night of this segment. And uh, we'll go through uh, insight meditation, analysis, and insight. And then the four foundations of mindfulness, and then a short section at the end about some uh, some fictitious entity. What is it called? The self. That's it. The self. I don't know. Caitlin, good evening. How was the retreat? It was really good. All right. And cool. The, and the beach, the water was warm compared to main water so wow yeah that's weird totally right. sounds like you went in a lot i tried not every day but i tried good for you cool <laughs> you're a hardy creature boy i went in there i could like i thought i couldn't come out it, my legs like just froze <laughs> that have been so you I thought I was going to have a heart attack. Like it, like cold, like you feel it in your chest. And I was like, it's probably time to get out. But this time it was lovely. <laughs> That's great. That's yeah, so cool. No, nice. I, and I don't like the cold water, but that was fine. I went in a, two, three times. Oh, good. Global warming. There you go. <laughs> okay, so uh, analysis and insight. We're on page... 423 and it's chapter 25 of the book and it's in part six which is mind training i believe uh, something like that for cynthia is that what it's called something like that yeah part six training the mind through meditation okay a special insight of fine investigation is cultivated. In general, the attainment of calm abiding must precede the attainment of insight. Some, some texts say that you can do either, but then there's this general consensus that you need calm abiding first. Sort of become the uh, uh, sort of the politically correct way of presenting things is to do uh, shamatha first quoting from shanti deva the authority having understood that it is through special insight endowed with calm abiding that the mental afflictions are destroyed calm abiding should be sought first the definition of special insight is a type of wisdom that from within calm abiding finally investigates its object while sustained by the bliss of pliancy induced by having analyzed its meditation object. 
interesting definition, which we'll we'll gloss through in some length in this chapter. It is called special insight because it sees its object in a special way, that is, in a way that is superior to calm abiding. That's the most unusual explanation I've ever seen. I've never seen that explanation before. Usually it's special insight because it's uh, differentiated from day-to-day insight. But here it's special because it's uh, compared to calm abiding. That's sort of strange. It is superior to the non-analytical state of calm abiding and that the object can appear more clearly when analyzed by special insight. Not a whole lot of uh, non-analytical Vipassana going on here, huh? Where's my panoramic awareness when I need it? Special insight is attained through meditation in the following way. From within calm abiding, one meditates with finally investigating wisdom that analyzes its object. When the power of that analysis induces the bliss of pliancy, this is posited as the attainment of genuine special insight before such pliancy arises. When one meditates without finally analyzing wisdom, excuse me, <coughs> it is only approximate special insight. But once that pliancy has arisen, it's genuine. The definition of pliancy and how it arises are explained. So we went through pliancy in the context of shamatha, or calm abiding, and the different types of pliancy, or different aspects or characteristics of it, and how those arise, and the nature of those. And so uh, Vipassana has a similar scheme of not being real Vipassana unless pliancy arises. It's very clear with shamatha, though. It's like you do the nine stages, attain the ninth stage, and then you need pliancy to hit full. Ding, ding, ding. Shamatha, tenth stage. One may have, or they have induced pliancy, but calm abiding, and that may remain undiminished. But here it is not a matter of just having attained uh, pliancy or just having pliancy in general. So what is it? When pliancy is induced by the power of analytical meditation, then the meditative awareness turns into special insight. The same point applies to uh, both kinds of special insight. The special insight focusing on reality as manifold, which is the conventional nature, and the special insight focusing on reality as it is, the ultimate nature. So the two kinds of special insight Again, another somewhat unusual characterization of Vipassana as having these two kinds, as if universally accepted. And then they quote from the Samdhinirmochana Sutra, unraveling the intent to support the idea that until it, uh, until um, it has an aspiration conducive to insight or appliancy rather. Um, Bhagavan, until the, bodhi, until the bodhisattvas achieve pliancy of body and mind, what do we call the meditative attention that he, she, uses to internally attend to the carefully contemplated phenomena as an image that is the object 
of one's concentration. Since it's a conceptual meditation, it has a conceptual image as the object. Maitreya, says the Buddha, it is not insight, but we may say it occurs in conjunction with an aspiration conducive to insight because pliancy has not arisen. And then he, they quote a number of times, this is the first one from Ratnakara Shanti's Instructions for the Perfection of Wisdom, which is one of the main, listed as one of the main sources on the tradition of the practice of Vipassana in the Mahayana tradition. And Ratnakara Shanti lived in the very late period of Buddhism in India, like 10th century, maybe 11th century even. And unfortunately, this is the one that remains not available in English translation. Supposedly, there's some versions in process, but currently not yet available. So anxiously awaiting the arrival of that. We'll have to have a course on that text. It's supposed to be a good text. Anyway, they call him uh, Ratna for short. He says, mental and bodily pliancy have been attained through calm abiding, and one abides in them then which should attend to the carefully contemplated object as an internal image object of concentration and finally investigate it. As long as mental and bodily pliancy have not arisen, this analytical wisdom is approximate insight. Once they have, it is genuine insight. The stages of meditation, Bhavana Krama by Kamala Shila, employs an analogy to explain the need to meditate with both of them together with special, this is a famous uh, analogy of the lamp and the wind, so I'll sort of skip this one, except towards the end, the last sentence, special insight eliminates the entire web of pernicious views, I thought that was a nice use of that word. Um, Hence, one is not perturbed by others. The king of concentration, Sutra, the uh, Samadhi Raja, Sutra says with the power of calm abiding, one becomes undistracted with special insight. One becomes like a mountain. Sorry, with the power of calm abiding, one becomes undistracted and with special insight like a mountain. Wasn't there a famous guy that was like the mountain? Isn't there? Doesn't that remind you of anything? You become like a mountain. No? Anyone? Game of Thrones, nobody remembers the mountain. <laughs> anyway. Never watched it. That's sort of amazing in itself. In general, it's said that all forms of meditative concentration are encompassed by the categories of calm abiding and special insight, just as a tree has many branches, leaves, and fruit, yet all those come together as parts of the main tree. Likewise, all the various types of meditation are included within two classes, specifically as introduced above. Either they are Either they are instances of analytical meditation, where one meditates by way of thinking about and analyzing the object using scriptural quotations, reasoning, and examples, as I'm sure you all do in your meditation, or they are instances of stabilizing meditation, where one intently places the mind single-pointedly on the meditation object without using analysis. 
analytical meditation encompasses the class of insight meditation and stabilizing meditation encompasses the class of calm abiding meditation now this is slightly different than we saw in the calm abiding chapter where they discussed this issue and uh, explained how both calm abiding and vipassana shamatha and vipassana could be either analytical or stabilizing so it's interesting that they present slightly different scheme here must have been written by a different author probably among their team uh, let's see or their instances of stabilizing I said that analytical meditation encompasses the class of insight meditation stabilizing meditation encompasses the class of calm abiding stage of meditation says stages rather says the Bhagavan taught bodhisattvas an unlimited variety of concentrations such as the immeasurables and so on but all are encompassed by calm abiding and special insight therefore we will discuss just that path that is the union of calm abiding and special insight so it seems based on that uh, quotation that the larger classes are calm abiding and special insight and that uh, analytical and stabilizing meditations are the sub uh, smaller class of uh, instances as opposed to, to the way they just presented it a couple of sentences ago anyway and when they say union here which way do they mean that do they mean that as sort of combination of the two as separate things or do they mean it in the way that we talk about it of the two being unified uh, I think most people consider those one and the same. The union of shamatha and vipassana. That there is only one union of shamatha and vipassana. But I mean, the only reason I asked is because they just finished talking about these separate classes as if they're separate sets. And so. Yeah, that's. They didn't say. Yeah. So. You know, we went through the whole logic thing and the comp comparison of phenomena. So, are these sets mutually exclusive? And if they are, I mean, they seem mutually exclusive, right? Analytical versus stabilizing. But if they are, then how can you have a combination of the two of them in the form of the union of shamatha vipassana? That's a good question. That's a, that's a great debate question. That's an excellent debate question. We'll have to. Uh, provide that feedback to the authors. <laughs> Thank you for that. Vimala Mitras, meaning of the gradual approach in meditation. So that's a neat little text by the Vimala Mitra, who's uh, brought uh, most of the Nyingma teachings into Tibet at the time of Padmasambhava, and has this little text on the stages of meditation. And uh, it's really cool text. We've seen it, I believe, in a course we had on the root sources of uh, the Vipassana tradition in India. He says, since all concentrations are included within these two, all yogis at all times definitely must rely on these two. The importance of it, of analytical meditation in general, once the degree of understanding that arises from learning about teachings corresponds to how many one has heard. That was pretty weird, isn't it? It's like a quantitative game. Like the more teachings you've heard, the more um, understanding you have. That's wow. weird. 
Wow, that, that is weird? a really weird statement. Isn't that strange? It's like, how about the comprehension that, that may or may not have occurred? <laughs> and uh, and based on that, there's a corresponding degree of understanding that comes from critically reflecting on them, just the pure quantity of them. From that point of view, you should just like spend all your time listening to teachings, different teachings. Similarly, the greater one's understanding, the greater one's practice of meditation, and based on this, one acquires correspondingly more ways to eliminate faults and actualize good qualities. <laughs> Isn't there just like one secret, you know, one main way to eliminate faults? Isn't that the idea that like faults are limitless and you could spend forever trying to limit all of them? <laughs> And instead, there's one that eliminates all of them. I don't know. That was this this, sex, this whole chapter has some weird stuff in it. I think, personally, but uh, therefore, learning and critical reflection are extremely important for meditation practice. The questions of Brahma Vishesha Chinti or something like that. Sutra says they become learned so as to finally investigate phenomena in accordance with reality. We don't know who he's talking about, but anyway. Also, stages of meditation says, with the wisdom arisen from meditative cultivation, one should meditate solely on whatever one realized. With the wisdom arisen from learning and reflection. So, with the wisdom that arises from meditation, you should, should meditate solely on what you've already understood from hearing and contemplating the prajnas of hearing and contemplating. Not on something else. You don't meditate on something that you can't figure out. You meditate on things that you have figured out, and then outside of meditate, presumably meditation, you try to figure out those things that you haven't figured out. It should be like racing a horse along the very course that it was introduced to. <laughs> right? You practice on a certain course, and then you race on that course. One must therefore engage in fine investigation of the ultimate. That assumes, uh, yeah, okay, so therefore you learn about the ultimate, you contemplate it, and then you meditate on it. One might eschew the analytical meditation that uses the wisdom of fine investigation and said, and said consider it sufficient to stop thinking altogether. <laughs> Enough with all this thinking. That would be a mistake, according to these guys. But to do so would be to abandon the root of perfect wisdom. This, again, this section, you know, also was, uh, this section also was strange. You know, they have a general point that I, I think we would all agree with, but the length that they go with it is pretty odd. Stages of meditation. This is by saying one should avoid thinking the wisdom defined as fine investigation of the ultimate is abandoned. Since the root of perfect wisdom is fine investigation of the ultimate, then if one abandons that, one severs its root and thereby abandons supermundane perfect wisdom. The logic being, if you can only meditate on things that you understood outside of meditation, and if you don't try to understand you know, the nature of reality outside of meditation, then you can't meditate on it, then if you don't do that, then you're not going to really go anywhere on the path. The same text says, if mindfulness and attention are not active, then the practitioner will be completely stupefied. And this is a sort of a different point that they're 
bringing together and this relates to you know to what extent you continue to have uh, mindfulness and uh, interestingly they don't use meta attention here but just attention here um, in your meditation practice if they're not active then the practitioner will be completely stupefied as such how could she be a yogi by meditatively cultivating non-mindfulness and non-attention that lack fine investigation of the ultimate one cultivates just stupidity hence the light of perfect wisdom is made to recede into the distance so here he touches on this famous issue of uh, what's called amanasikara in sanskrit ah uh, is the negative manas is mind and ikara is the activity of mind kara is the root of karma and so it's a mind that, that is without any mental activity or state that's without mental activity and kamala shila is eschewing that <laughs> and uh maitripa writes some uh famous text promoting Amanasikara, which we, uh, in a more, <clears throat> in this uh, more sort of normal language, we would recognize as um, non-thought. We would probably call it non-thought. And we promote that in Mahamudra practice, like stop thinking. You don't have to keep thinking endlessly. You know, just experience bliss luminosity or clarity and non-thought the three the three main uh, experiences one gets out of shamatha practice and uh, so here they're saying that's not good i'm just also just curious about the way i i understand there's the, the that whole thing about being stupid pigs and all that but this, this thing of <laughs> meditating meditatively cultivating non-mindfulness and non-attention i mean who does that deliberately well they're talking about this trend that uh Maitripa started where he specifically says cultivate amanasikara non-mindfulness and there's this vajrayana version of mindfulnesses four mindfulnesses that you can find in moonbeams okay so that he's referring to that thing where we are talking about yeah non-mindfulness non-mindfulness yeah is it and it is also non-attention I don't recall that specifically um, in. I think they're under. They're, they're saying that non-attention is the amanasikara, non-mental activity. They're construing that as non-attention. Uh, okay. And you know, so then it's sort of like when you go through the the obstacles and antidotes and the stages of shamatha, when you reach that stage uh, between seven eight and nine seven and eight are you uh, apply the antidotes with exertion and uh, which are the antidotes are basically mindfulness and what they call meta awareness but then when you don't need to apply those you don't and you experience equilibrium and uh, that gives rise to the stage ninth stage of shamatha which is accompanied by bliss clarity and non-thought so this whole thing is uh, it's a little and bit that, they, so this school would not acknowledge that as being part of the like they wouldn't acknowledge that part of eight and nine and 
you know, the non They would say that you're they would say you still have a, a subtle thought of watching what's going on and and commenting on your meditation practice. So when do I they mean, ever let go of the commenting? They don't. <laughs> do they actually it's, achieve enlightenment? So, so, so called? No, no, no. That's, you know, at, at enlightenment, then you're no longer a sentient being and you no longer have thought because you don't have a mind. But, so somehow they make a leap from all this subtle commentary. They to do. Some kappa did it somehow, I guess. Yeah, some kappa. That's some kappa you got there. <laughs> yeah, so this was a little weird. Uh, by meditatively cultivating non-mindfulness and non-attention, that luck finally gets investigation the ultimate. One cultivates just stupidity, hence the light of perfect wisdom is made to recede into the distance. And then they equate this with the horrors of Huashong. Uh, this one needs to engage in analytical meditation with the wisdom of fine investigation over and over again to counter the mental afflictions. And we saw this in a, a, a text, I believe it was by John Wilcontrol, where he says that the difference is between these two traditions is that the Galupas never stop with the analysis and that the Kagyu and Nyingma once they experience the, the meaning, the result of the analysis, they let go of the analysis and they just rest in the result, which is what we have in the slogans of Atisha, right? When, you know, the trace, the, the progression of Vipassana, the four meditation, absolute bodhicitta meditation slogans, uh, Regard all dharmas as dreams, contemplate the nature of unborn insight, um, liberate even the antidote, and rest in the nature of alia. And so there, it's like no more analysis. So anyway, this one needs to engage in analytical meditation with the wisdom of fine investigation over and over to counter the mental afflictions. One cannot eliminate them merely by stopping all mental activity. One must engage in analytical thinking, such as contemplating the faults of the afflictions. To defeat an enemy in the battle, one has to confront the enemy and disarm the enemy. One cannot overcome an enemy by sitting down with one's eyes shut. <laughs> I love the way they drag this out. The play of Majushri Sutra says, that's a cool, must be a fun sutra, the play of Manjushri. Um, Manjushri asked, daughter, how does the Bodhisattva gain victory in battle? And the girl replied, oh, Manjushri, when one analyzes all phenomena, they are not perceived. I thought that was a really good answer. Isn't that cool answer? That's a sharp, woman <laughs> let's try that again everybody get that uh, when one analyzes all phenomena they're not perceived because there are no phenomena no okay maybe it's just me stages of meditation says likewise a yogi opens his eye of wisdom and defeats his enemy the mental afflictions with the weapon of wisdom he has no fear he does not shut his eyes like a coward you coward, you cog, you cowards. <laughs> While meditating, the 
The choice to employ analytical or stabilizing meditation should be made on the basis of specific factors such as the nature of the topic or focal object of one's meditation as well as the state of one's mind. For example, in meditation, meditations such as those for developing faith in one's guru or for cultivating compassion and tolerance, one mainly begins with analytical meditation. However, at the end of that analytical meditation, having drawn forth an experience that transforms the mind, one must place the mind intently within that experience without discursive analysis. So what are they talking about? They're, they're going through the same thing that we just mentioned, right? Likewise, with the topic of death and permanence, when thinking about it, one mainly does analytical meditation, simply analyzing the situation again and again using scriptural quotations and reasoning then when one finds conviction at the end of analysis one mainly does stabilizing meditation by single-pointedly resting in the awareness that is the reality of death and impermanence thus even a single meditation topic like death and impermanence involves both analytical meditation and stabilizing meditation you know how contradictory are they like saying that stabilizing meditation isn't without thought is that what they're implying that it's not without thought yeah are they implying because they you know to not think was the worst thing in the world and now they just promoted that when you realize the meaning you don't need to you're you just do stabilizing i don't know there are many scriptures that explain how to engage in analytical and stabilizing meditation how all three learning reflection and meditation of the uh, three prajnas are essential and how the mind needs to be trained by alternating analytical and stabilizing meditation. For example, Ornament of the Mahayana Sutras by Maitreya, the future Buddha, says at first, independence on learning correct attention arises. From correct attention comes wisdom, whose object is the ultimate. Likewise, the stages of meditation by Kamala Shila says, with wisdom arisen from meditative cultivation, one should meditate solely on whatever one realized, with the wisdom arisen from learning and reflection. We saw this earlier, not on something else. It should be like racing a horse. We just, like, didn't we just read this? The same quote? Just about, yeah. Same quote. Same Did, quote. Yeah. Do they have a problem with the idea that some spontaneous thing might arise in your meditation? I think so. I, I mean, that seems to me very controlling and rigid. I think so. They did the same exact quote with wisdom. That is bizarre to to do the same quote. We're going to have to complain about this. I know we're not allowed to complain. You're right. Never mind. Vimalamicha says, went through special insight. Meditation wisdom greatly increases in calm abiding, decrease the mind wavers. Therefore, do calm abiding meditation. When calm abiding meditation glows, then special insight decreases. Then it's like being asleep as the, so the mind cannot see clearly. Therefore, one should do wisdom meditation at that time. What about the union that they just talked about of the two together? Kamala Shila gives detailed explanations about the importance of both analytical and stabilizing difference between them, the unique influences of each, how to maintain both, and so on. However, this chapter does not give any real instructions, by the way. Here's a short excerpt from that sutra where Kamala Shila quotes from, another, from a sutra, Cloud of Jewels Sutra. 
when I was skillful in dealing with faults engaged in yoga and meditating on emptiness in order to gain freedom from all proliferating tendencies, meditating extensively on emptiness, one seeks whatever things scatter and attract the mind in terms of their essential nature, and seeking them in this way, one realizes that they are empty. Examining also the mind that seeks them, one realizes that too is empty, and seeking also in terms of its essential nature, the mind with which one examines the mind, one realizes that it is empty as well. Inquiring extensively in this way, in this way one achieves the yoga of signlessness. So this was the standard progression, uh, analyzing objects, seeing objects as empty, seeing the mind as empty, seeing the realization as empty. And they, they, the fourth step is letting go or resting, and they don't quite have that. They just have the accomplishment of the um, yoga of signlessness, which is one of the three doors of liberation. The other two doors being anyone, any guesses? The other two doors? Eight million dollars or selfless? Not really. No, I'm sorry. Wishless. Uh, Wish wishlessness, wishlessness. yeah. Yes, wishlessness. Wish, wishy-washiness, yeah. Wishy-lessness. And... Dharma uh, door of liberation of nada, yeah. Nada. Headlessness, the headlessness. Nada of nothing. Emptiness. Dharma door of emptiness. Emptiness, the Dharma door of emptiness is the ground. The Dharma door of silenceness is the path. And the Dharma door of wishlessness is the fruition. And wishlessness is an odd term. It's like uh, without expectation of anything. Oh, this, this passage teaches that engaging in the yoga of silenceness is preceded by thorough investigation. It clearly demonstrates that it's impossible to achieve non-conceptuality by merely abandoning attention altogether and not analyzing the nature of things by means of wisdom. However, it is possible to achieve non-conceptuality by analyzing. <laughs> Stages again says, therefore, with one's mind held by the hand of concentration, which use the instrument of extremely refined wisdom to extract the seed in the mind that gives rise to false conceptions regarding forms and so on. Now, wouldn't that be cool if they could find the source of conceptuality in the brain and they could do an operation and remove it? <laughs> the seed. Isn't that what they're saying? We extract the seed in the mind. Right? I get that but right. They said mind, not brain. Ah, subtle. Accordingly, just as trees once uprooted don't grow again from the ground, false conceptions once uprooted will not grow again in the mind. For this very reason, the Bhagavan taught the path uniting Shamatha and Vipassana, since those two are the cause of the non-conceptual perfect wisdom. They are the key to abandoning the obscurations. Thus it was taught. Uh, the quotes are much better than the, the rest of the text in this chapter. Abiding in ethical conduct, one attains concentration. Having attained that, one engages in wisdom meditation. By means of wisdom, one attains 
immaculate exalted wisdom uh, one with immaculate exalted wisdom has consummate ethical conduct in other words once calm abiding has stabilized the mind on the meditation object wisdom thoroughly investigates it at which point the light of perfect exalted wisdom arises at that time just as light clears away darkness obscuration is dispelled like the eye and light these those two calm abiding special insight are mutually compatible in the context of the arising of perfect exalted wisdom they're not incompatible that's interesting these are sort of contradictory forces stable uh this calm abiding and special insight but in the presence of exalted wisdom they're not incompatible concentration is not by nature darkness instead it is defined by single pointedness of mind it is also taught that in the state of concentration one perfectly knows ultimately ultimate reality exactly as it is therefore concentration is fully compatible with wisdom and not incompatible concentration is characterized by single pointedness that's one of the fundamental ideas in meditation one who's analyzing things with wisdom in a state of concentration may experience the non-perception of all things that is the highest form of non-perception for yogis that kind of state characterized by calm abiding is effortless because there's nothing else to be seen beyond it the state is also called calm because in it all proliferating tendencies characterized by conceptions of existence non-existence so on are pacified thus when a yogi analyzes with wisdom the yogi does not perceive any essential nature of an existent thing one just does not have the conception of existence at that time and one also does not have the conception of non-existence That about sums it up in the sections above. We have briefly discussed a number of topics, including the instructions on how to cultivate flawless concentration. So in the sections above seems to apply to the previous few chapters that have gone on so far in part six, including calm abiding. Uh, a number of topics, including instructions on how to cultivate flawless concentration, how to or calm body and engage in analytical meditation when analytical meditation is required and how to engage in stabilizing meditation with stabilizing meditation is required how to combine analytical and stabilizing meditation when a union of these two is required <laughs> and in accord with the practical instructions and interpretation of the sutras presented in Maitreya's texts in Asanga's texts on the levels of yogic deeds and in Kamala Shila's text. Our brief presentation also explored topics such as the definitions of calm abiding and special insight, the different types of meditation objects, the distinction between analytical and stabilizing meditation, the way to establish calm abiding and special insight. Uh, 
by means of meditation using the eight applications countering the five faults and the nine stages of mental stabilization, the identification of laxity and the excitation, both gross and subtle, difference between laxity and dullness, and the difference between scattering and excitation. The way to eliminate these faults by means of their respective antidotes, the identification of mindfulness and meta-awareness, the difference between them, and when to apply each and how, when a novice first cultivates concentration, he or she should not be satisfied with mere stability alone, but must develop vibrant clarity. As for a detailed presentation on meditation, so all of the things that they said that they explained carefully, clearly, were shamatha-based uh, aspects, and they did not really explain vipassana. Seems to me. Um, as for a detailed presentation on meditation with topics such as the characteristics of the person who meditates, the object meditated on, how to engage in it, and the way of developing particular levels of mind through meditation, this is found in texts such as Asanga's Shravaka Bhumi, Vasubandhu's Treasury of Knowledge, and its auto-commentary, Shadi Deva's excuse me, compendium of training, Kamala Sheila's Bhavana Krama. Someone should understand these details from those sources, some of which are trans available in translation, and we've looked at. Uh, Sangha's Shravaka levels is not yet available in English translation, but supposedly will be soon. Thank God there's uh, somebody working on it. Very happy about that. Mindfulness meditation. Can I ask a sort of stupid question here? Um, no, no stupid questions allowed. <laughs> um, again, I'm just trying to sort out where everything lines up. And the, at the beginning of that long paragraph that you just finished, um, the first thing they say is we just discussed things, including how to cultivate flawless concentration. And then they go on about analytic and stabilizing. So I just wanted to understand whatever insights you have about where what co concentration is that considered primarily part of shamatha or is that a calm abiding or is it um considered more a mental factor that applies to both it's a good question because it uh, certainly has these different aspects in the buddhist tradition Let's uh, see if uh, concentration is in the glossary. Let's see, common locus, compassion, conceived object, conceptual cognition, conceptualization. Con no, no. They went from conceptually to condition. And what's the Sanskrit and Tibetan typically for concentration? Just out of curiosity if uh it's usually dhyana right which, uh, okay. you know, oh. which is the absorption meditation okay. right right because see and, that's why i'm i find it a confusing topic because in some ways like some traditions sort of dismiss that over you know not getting hung up in absorption and concentration in our conventional language is not absorb is not it's not exactly that absorption thing. It's it's more like focus, right? So, 
It, it seems to be their translation of uh, samadhi. Which is different than dhyana in that case? It is. Uh-huh. And, and as far as its association, then, is it associated more with shamatha or? Oh, samadhi or concentration? Concentration. But if you're saying that this, I just find it's a very kind of, slippery topic that i mean like some forms of shamatha are very much concentration oriented yeah it seems like but at the same time they are treat it seems like they're treating it as a sort of a separate thing not fully aligned with shamatha so therefore i just i'm just not sure what what the interrelationships are considered to be yeah yeah let's check it out for a second sleep yeah. uh Okay, so in the index, there's a number of entries for concentration, and there they give the Sanskrit samadhi. Okay. And that, I, I was figuring that because they're quoting from Bhavanakrama and using mm -hmm. the word concentration, which they hadn't used in this these two sections up until that point, I think, in the, in the presentation of Shamatha and Vipassana, they had not used the term concentration until those quotes, I think. Yeah, interesting. <clears throat> Concentration and, and is not so it's, Samadhi is like the culmination of meditation. And, um, oh, here on uh, 425 in general, it said that all forms of meditative concentration, okay, so there it's used generally to include all types of meditation, Samadhi. And uh, Samadhi... Uh, it can be used in different ways in the in the Buddhist tradition. It's often used as there can be samadhis of shamatha and there can be samadhis of vipassana. Okay, so it is a sort of a third independent word meaning that doesn't align specifically one to one or the other. Yeah, it's like how would how would shamatha samadhi compare to ninth or tenth stage shamatha? Presumably, it would be a, a description of 10th stage shamatha and uh, accomplished vipassana. Shamatha, samadhi vipassana would be the like accomplishment of vipassana. Like where they say in the top, well, at the, I'm sorry, in my book it's the top, but uh, the paragraph before what I just read, that quote where they said, in a state of concentration, one perfectly knows ultimate reality exactly as it is. So there, right. that's really more Vipassana, right? It's the Samadhi of Vipassana. That's, it's a Vipassana Samadhi. That's right. So fascinating. So in that sense, it seems like it is in some ways just like, um, is, is that considered a mental factor, that one? Well, in the, in the index, it has an entry that says, as extensive mental factor, and it lists some entries. So let's see. You know, maybe as we go on, you could look at these things yeah i mean i don't i don't mean to yeah, i didn't mean to belabor it i just wanted to raise yeah. it and if there was are you able in the in the digital version like can you go to the index and then click on you know the entries and immediately find them because that's a lot faster than oh let's any see if of i can us do that or whether i will get lost forever <laughs> uh we'll, we'll see if 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 i start drowning here you'll you'll know okay index uh oh i see going to all of those pages 
I'll see. But feel free to go on, and I may try try page one hundred one. There's an there's an entry that says uh, <laughs> function well, of. Your pages are different than mine, so I can't do oh, that. But function of do function of. Function of hold on one second. This is under concentration. Yes, ma'am. In the index, hold on. Con. Whoops. Con. James. Uh, function of. Got it. Well, it does say 101, oddly enough, even though it's not. <laughs> um, okay. <clears throat> uh, concentration causes the mind to stay placed on the object and so on. In brief, mind and mental factors must be differentiated and identified in terms of either the functions of the mind or the functions of the attributes of the object. When remembering an object such as a visible form, although the, both the main mind and its accompanying factor of mindfulness are concomitant in observing the same object, a visible form, they engage it differently. The main mind does so by cognizing the object itself, the visible form, whereas mindfulness does so by causing the object not to be lost or forgotten. That's what it said after concentration. So okay. causing the mind to stay placed on the object and so on. Well, it's a broad topic and uh, it would take some time to cull yeah. through and see how they're using it here. But yeah. Thanks for your comments. I'll, I'll check out more of the index later. Okay. And let <laughs> you and report back next yes. year. <laughs> right. Next semester. So yeah, we'll go year. on uh, to chapter 26 called Mindfulness Meditation. I haven't explained how to engage in analytical and placement meditation as a means for training the mind. We now illustrate the practice of meditation with a brief presentation of the four applications of mindfulness, which have been taught in numerous contexts in Buddhist texts as a way to counter the four distorted conceptions of the body and so on, meaning the, the other of the four foundations or applications as they call them, as pure, blissful, permanent, and a self. So those are four wrong conceptions that the contemplation or application of mindfulness of body, feeling, mind, and dharmas dispels those four wrong conceptions. Sutra in the application of mindfulness, Satipatthana Sutta in uh, Pali, appears in the Theravada scriptures in a more extended version. Here they list all the different versions of it, skipping that. The next paragraph with the addition of the short version discourses. There are then five major collections of suttas in the Pali Canon. Although these are numerous, there are numerous parallels between the Pali and Tibetan canons. There's actually not that many. There's only the Vinaya section is really comparable. Very few of the sutras in the Pali Canon appear in the Tibetan canons, strangely enough. Uh, these collections were not translated into Tibetan as collections and so are not found in the Tibetan canon as such, which is vague. They're not in there as collections. You don't have a collection of the middle length or so forth, but neither do you have many of the instances, which means they, uh, they are not found in the Tibetan canon, which is this odd thing. The Satipatthana Sutta is not found in the Tibetan canon, believe it or not. So it's a little bit unusual that Trungpa Rinpoche early on chose to talk, teach on this sutra, reflecting that he had been exposed to it and uh, Theravon's focus on it when he was in England. According to the 
preambles of the sutra on the application of mindfulness, or sutta, as found in the long and middle-length discourses. These suttas were taught in the country of Kuru, to the Kurus. In the west of the Ganges plain, it says, monks is the one way for the purification of beings. Pretty powerful. For the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the passing away of pain and dejection, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of Nibbana, namely the four applications of mindfulness. What are they here, monks, in regard to the body? A monk dwells contemplating the body. Ardent? clearly comprehending and mindful, those three uh, characteristics of shamatha, ardent, clearly comprehending, and mindful. We use heedful or conscientious instead of ardent. The tradition has changed that one characteristic. The others remain the same, clearly comprehending, samprajanya, and mindful is uh, smriti. Having, having subdued longing, and dejection in regard to the world. In regard to feelings, one dwells contemplating feelings, ardent, clearly comprehended, and mindful. So this repeats for all four of them being, uh, the remainder being mind and uh, phenomena. Opening with this brief summary, going to back to the text, a more detailed presentation that explains the application of mindfulness to the body in the following sequence. First, it shows how to cultivate mindfulness on the basis of one's breathing, whereby one focuses on the natural activity of breathing in and breathing out, then by distinguishing outer from inner parts of the body and focusing on them separately. It explains how to become aware of the arising and disintegration of the body. This is followed by an explanation of how to develop full awareness of one's engagement in the four types of behavior. The four types of behavior are standing, walking, lying down, and sitting. <laughs> it's very odd to call them the four types of behavior. It's like the four postures. But it's like, what are the four things that people do? That's all they do is either they stand, walk, lie down, or sit. Finally explains how to become aware the body's an impure substance. Aware that the body is composed of the four elements, how to meditate in permanence by way of the nine signs of death, such as the decay and rotting of the body, and so in the concluding section, the same text says, and this is the most interesting part of the sutra, I find. In this way, in regard to the body, one dwells contemplating the body internally, or dwells contemplating the body externally, or dwells contemplating the body both internally and externally, or else dwells contemplating the body in in the body, its nature of arising, or dwells contemplating the body, its nature of vanishing, or dwells contemplating in the body, its nature of both arising and vanishing. Whereas mindfulness that there is a body is simply established in one to the extent necessary for bare knowledge, which is usually translated as bare attention and repeated mindfulness. And one dwells independent, not clinging to anything in the world. That too is how a monk, in regard to the body, dwells contemplating the body. So some of the interesting things were contemplating body internally, like one's own body, and externally is interpreted by many as being other people's bodies. Every once in a while, somebody inter interprets as contemplating the surface of your body as opposed to the innards. But... And then the arising uh, and the vanishing is usually presented more like the uh, um, the factors that bring about the body and the factors that bring about it dis its dissolution, which uh, I 
think is one of the more interesting parts of the sutra that is rarely talked about, unfortunately. And then this, uh, this uh, statement of one, uh, or else mindfulness that there is a body is simply established to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and repeated mindfulness, which is more what our tradition now does. It's sort of just like we have a body, just like being aware of the body, that there is a body without all the complexity. And there is a huge amount of complexity in this sutra, as we see from the rest of this chapter. This sutra then teaches how to practice the application of mindfulness with feelings regarding individual feelings of the three types, pleasant, painful, painful and neutral, also worldly, transworldly, pleasant feeling, worldly and unpleasant feeling, both worldly and trans, mundane, neutral feeling. Then it teaches how to practice the application of mindfulness to the mind, applying it to 16 types of mind. Minds with the three poisons, mental afflictions of attachment, anger, and delusion, and minds that are free from them. And based on those six, minds that are contracted and distracted, exalted and unexalted, surpassed and unsurpassed, concentrated, unconcentrated, liberated and unliberated. Interesting list of different states of mind. Then with regard to mindfulness, phenomena teaches how to meditate by relating to each of the following factors in a sequential order. The five hindrances, which interestingly are the only category that they spell out. The five hindrances, uh, which are hindrances to meditation, are sense desire, hatred, dullness and sleep, excitation and regret and doubt. The five aggregates, the six bases, the seven factors conducive to enlightenment and the four noble ones. Finally, the sutra concludes with the benefits of meditating on the four applications. Here we offered a short explanation as an introduction to this precious sutra. Now we look briefly at the presentation application of mindfulness in the upper and lower Abhidharma text, the Song's Compendium of Knowledge, which is called the upper Abhidharma text. Says So uh, they, they go through the Satipatthana version, and then we'll see a huge number of quotes from Mahayana sutras that present the Mahayana version of going through these four foundations of mindfulness, interestingly. Asanga, anyway, coming back to Asanga's compendium of knowledge, Abhidharma Samachaya says one should understand the application of mindfulness in terms of their objects, their essential nature, their accompanying factors, their meditative cultivation, the fruits of meditation on them. Accordingly, we will explain the applications of mindfulness <coughs> excuse me, in these five points. Once again, are in terms of their objects, their essential nature, their accompanying factors, and their meditative cultivation. First, there are four objects in the, in the application of mindfulness, because it's called the four application of mindfulness. And they use the traditional version. They don't use Trump Rimshay's version. I don't know why he doesn't use Trump Rimshay's version. It's a little odd. Just kidding. They lived a little bit time difference away. <clears throat> mindfulness practice specified in terms of these four objects to help eliminate the four distorted apprehensions, holding the body which is unattractive as attractive. Hey, speak for yourself. Holding uh, feelings which are in the nature of suffering as blissful, holding the mind which is impermanent as permanent, holding phenomena which are selfless as possessing self. Okay, first quote from Mahayana Sutras about the four foundations. Questions of Ratna Chuda Sutra says, one who abides the four foundations, four applications of mindfulness, completely abandons four misconceptions. And they just repeat the same four that we just went through, so I'll skip that. Um, Okay, it ends with, without distortion, <clears throat> one establishes the perfect truth. Second is the essential nature of the applications of mindfulness. Mindfulness or wisdom 
that's an odd one, huh? Mindfulness or wisdom. Are those synonymous? Are those, you know, can you just substitute one for the other? Interestingly, in the Abhidharma <clears throat> Kosha, mindfulness is glossed as wisdom. And it's explained as one of those glosses where the, it's a cause and result thing. The idea being that mindfulness is the cause that results in wisdom. And so therefore, the cause uh, becomes known by the attribute of its uh, result, by the name of its result. <clears throat> no wisdom. Mindfulness or wisdom takes one of the four as its focus and observes and analyzes it <clears throat> in terms of its specific characteristics. such as the body being impure and so on, or in terms of its general characteristics, such as being impermanent. So uh, specific characteristics are characteristics specific to the body, separate uh, as distinct from feelings. In this case, the body is being impure, whereas uh, general characteristics as being impermanent applies to all four objects. Actually, all three objects, the fourth, uh, well, all four the phenomena, dharmas. Uh, compendium of knowledge, for example, says, a song is text, what is the essential nature of wisdom and mindfulness? Treasury says, treasury of knowledge is uh, Abhi, uh, Vasubandhu. By thoroughly investigating both types of characteristics, i.e. specific and general, based on the four, the wisdom arisen from learning and so on manifests. As for the etymology, the phrase application, mindfulness, which in Sanskrit is smriti upastana, the Vaibhashas could consider it to mean that just as when splitting a block of one, one inserts a wedge in the crack to hold it open so that one hits the right place. Wisdom engages its object through the power of mindfulness, not forgetting the object or its aspects. Has anyone here split wood using a wedge? Okay, so uh, you, uh, you uh, hit the wood with an axe, right? And you make a little cut and then you place the wedge in and you knock the wedge down. Or you what? might even just put the wedge and use like a big fat sort of hammer. There's these big heavy duty hammers. So you actually wedge it first. Usually called a mallet, right? Yes, thank you. Yes. So you don't actually use the axe. Once the, the wedge is in, you just mallet, you just hammer it down and it splits the wood, right? You, you use the back of the axe or you can the use back the axe there. as a wedge and then hit that. Right, right. But I, I have, uh, I take issue with the way they describe this. <laughs> anyway. In other words, you don't like to look at the mindfulness as the wedge. <laughs> no, just the analogy. I agree with the, the way it's, it's used, but just the incorrect aspect of the wedge in cutting wood and splitting wood. Anyway, Fasa Blondu. Bandhu rather explains that initially wisdom finally investigates the meditative object and after which it is held by mindfulness. Actually, I skipped a sentence. Uh, the Vaibhashikas consider it to mean, as with the wedge, wisdom engages its object through the power of mindfulness, not forgetting the object or its aspect. So in other words, through mindfulness, we continue to uh, hold the object in mind 
so that wisdom can analyze it. And without the mindfulness, wisdom would end up analyzing all sorts of other things in a scattered fashion instead of a focused fashion. Thus, application of mindfulness means that mindfulness is applied to the object of wisdom. Wisdom, rather, treasury of knowledge, auto-commentary says, why is wisdom referred to as the application of mindfulness? And uh, they just, he just repeats what we just read. So I'll skip that third, the accompanying factors of the applications of mindfulness are the mind and mental factors that are concomitant with any of the four, the application of mindfulness on the body and so on. That was a sort of vague response to the accompanying factors. What are they? They are the concomitant mind and mental factors. <laughs> you know what they are. You don't have to ask me what they are. They're, they're what they are. Fourth, with respect to meditative cultivation, Rasupanda's treasury says the following about how to meditate by thoroughly investigating both types of characteristics based on the four objects, the wisdom arisen from learning, and so on manifests. As this states, there is the meditation both on the specific and general characteristics. He didn't really give a good explanation of how, did he? <laughs> but he's been dead a long time, so we won't won't try to disturb him. Mindfulness of the body. In regard to the body, the way to meditate on specific characteristics, meditate on the body is impure. As composed of the elements and their derivatives and so forth, the way to meditate on general characteristics, meditate on all conditioned things, such as the body is impermanent, and all contaminated things, as in the nature of suffering. The sacred Vinaya scripture says, in whatever place one stays, seated, cross-legged on the mat, sat down, mindfulness manifestly placed on one's upright body. One must abandon the eight tactile objects. If you remember from our Dudra, they were, you know, soft and rough and long and short and something, something else, four more. One thinks the body is like a sickness, a cancer, a weapon, poison, and permanent suffering, merely empty and selfless. They didn't really have painkillers back then, so it's sort of understandable. Indeed, since this body is in the nature of suffering, it's like a sickness. Since its suffering is a strong sickness, it's like cancer, and so on. So they go to gloss and explain the use of those terms. And uh, towards the end, which is on the page of top of page 436, it's not established as belonging to an independent self. It's merely empty since the body and so on is not established as being an independent self. It is selfless. The antidote to the predominance of attachment is as follows. With resolute attention, one should meditate in the color, shape, touch, and um, honoring of the body is unattractive. Those four qualities, color, shape, touch, and honoring of the body are then gone through in great detail. Since the mind that meditates on that unattractiveness is of the nature of non-attachment, it serves then as an antidote to attachment to the color of the body, the shape of the body, the touch of the body, and to the honoring of the body. Among these four types of attachment to the body is an antidote to the attachment of the color of the body when meditates discerning the body to be unattractive, focusing on the body, which is the object of attachment, appearing as blue, black, red, as an antidote to attachment to the shape of the body when meditates discerning the body being attracted by focusing on the body, which is the object of attachment, appearing as wasting away or as broken up.
as an antidote to attachment to the touch or tactile feel of the body one meditates on discerning the body to be unattracted by focusing on the body which is the object of attachment appearing as maggot eaten and as a skeleton joined together with sinews <laughs> you can start with me you can you can visualize me as maggot eaten okay I'll, I'll volunteer to go first as an antidote to attachment to the honoring of the body when meditates discerning the body being attracted by focusing on, on a dead unmoving corpse and then they quote from the perfection of wisdom sutra 18,000 lines where they go through the same exact thing um interestingly though saying let's see oh subuddhi at such a time as a bodhisattva great being dwells in a charnel ground and Subhuti is the main character in this sutra of the 18,000 lines. Upon seeing, or most of the perfection of wisdom sutra, upon seeing various bodies discarded in the charnel ground, have been dead for a day, two days, three days, four, five, <laughs> with a decayed appearance, blue appearance, rotting appearance, and a maggot appearance. One thinks this body is also phenomenal like that and has such a nature, so it's not free from that reality. And this also meditates in that way with regard to the very body. Subhuti, in this way, Bodhisattva, great being, having eliminated covetousness for the world and mental discomfort, abides contemplating the body as body with ardent meta awareness and mindfulness. So they just repeated the refrain of the Satipatthana Sutra, interestingly enough in the Sanskrit Prajnaparamita Sutra, even though those Prajnaparamita Sutras, um, well, anyway, the, that was translated into Tibetan, but not the Satipatthana Sutta. Anyway, um, Osibuddhi, furthermore, at such a time, as a Bodhisattva, a great being, seeing discarded human corpses that have been dead for six days, seven, uh, pecked and gnawed in various ways, whether by crows, eagles, golden crested birds, vultures, vomit eaters, wolves, foxes, dogs, or any type of worms. One think, thinks this body also is a phenomenon like that and has such a nature, so it's not free from that reality. Treasure of Knowledge says the beginner practices visualizing bones as extended up to the ocean and then reducing it. Said that an accomplished one practices by separating the foot and so on up to half the skull. One with perfected attention practices by holding the mind focused between the eyebrows, which we learn later is the bone between the eyebrows. So this is a visualization practice one does of skeleton visualizing externally and internally. Meditation on the unattractive with resolute attention visualizing the body as the skeleton is explained in three levels of practice. Beginner. Level yoga, the yoga, the accomplished one, the yoga, perfected attention. The first one focused on the mind to the big toe on the foot, the forehead, or some other part of the body visualizes the flesh as rotted and decomposed, and it's just snow white bones like a skeleton. <laughs> it should be like a disclaimer of this part of the book, you know, like just some graphic imagery. Um, then in stages after that, one visualizes the entire body as a skeleton, and then one visualizes that skeletons fill one's room until finally they pervade the earth, reaching as far as the ocean. There's skeletons everywhere. Isn't that amazing? It's like the whole room is full of skeletons, and then outside there's just skeletons everywhere, filling the whole earth as far as the ocean. When one gathers the meditation object back, one withdraws it in stages from the outside and having visualized one's own body, 
Alone is a skeleton. One focuses attention this way again and again. This is how to practice beginner level yoga in a second. One visualizes skeletons pervading everywhere. Then there's before one gathers the meditation object back, which is skeletons. You bring all the skeletons back and one visualizes the feet. One's feet is bones. Releasing that visualization, one visualizes the remaining parts of the body other than the fetus bones and focuses the mind on these, and gradually one visualizes that what remains is half the body is bones and focuses on the mind and that. Finally, one continues up to the point where just half the skull is visualized as bones. Isn't that bizarre? Just half of the head is visualized as bones and the rest is not. Finally, one continues up, uh, sorry, and one focuses the mind, the Sadapraxis Yoga of the accomplished one. And the third, the uh, one visualized skeletons pervading everywhere, then as before, one gathers the meditation object back, and one gradually visualizes the remaining parts of the body's bones, and one focuses on that. Finally, releasing that visualization, one focuses the mind on the place between the eyebrows is the remaining patch of bone, merely the size of the big toe, and the Sadapraxis Yoga perfected attention. We saw a reference to the skeleton world in the um, explanation of the uh, special powers that arise out of the, uh, when, when they talked about different types of form, they talked about uh, forms that are uh, imperceptible form or something like that, forms that arise through contemplation. And they talked about how people who, great saints, great uh, arhats who can do uh, um, absorption meditations on the different elements would then manifest that element and thereby walk in the air or on water, things like that. And they also mentioned in passing uh, skeletons, that they would um, experience skeletons as everywhere. And uh, in, in a real way, they could actually just like walking in the air, they could walk on skeletons. Overall, there's nine ways to meditate in the body that are attractive as an antidote to attachment to the color of the body when meditates. So then they just like repeat what we just went through. So I'll skip this. And um, in the middle of the paragraph, we get into honoring, which we didn't have really an explanation before. It says, as an antidote to attachment to the honor of the body, one cultivates the attitude that it's unattractive in one way by focusing it on an unmoving corpse. And finally, as an antidote to attachment to all factors, the color and so forth of the body, one cultivates the attitude that the body is unattractive in one way by visualizing the body as a skeleton. Since the skeleton doesn't have any of the four bases for attachment, such as color, visualize, then meditate on the body as a skeleton. Uh, visualize and meditate on the body skeleton is a suitable antidote for all four attachments. The mind meditating on the body is unattractive, attending to what is visualized, superimposed onto the focus of one attachment since it perceives, for example, just one factor of the form aggregate, such as the temporary color shape. It's an antidote that works by merely suppressing a mental affliction. It's not an antidote that eliminates it completely. The antidote to a predominance of conceptualization is to meditate by counting the inflow and the outflow of one's breathing and placing one's mindfulness single-pointedly on that one out of distraction. Treasury presents the meditation on the inflow and outflow of the breath in terms of six aspects as follows. This is the most important part of the whole book, that there's this system of doing meditation on the breath in six steps. 
and this six steps goes back to the treasury of uh, Abhidharma, the kosha, and it appears then in so many other sources. It's just really cool. It appears in a song of Shravakabhumi, and it appears in uh, Chinese texts on meditation, and in uh, other uh, texts on meditation, the scheme of the six phases of meditation, on um, the breath, and the way that these are interpreted, in my humble opinion, are uh, very dramatically and indicate basically the way that we receive the tradition of meditation on the breath today, where uh, it uh, sort of transforms from uh, a shamatha to a vipassana practice without having to go through all the formal stages but that's just my hunch i was looking at my hunch uh let's see with the body placed in the seven point sitting posture one focuses on the inflow and outflow of the breath while continuously maintaining single pointed meditation as the setup for these six the first with regard to counting so the first of the six is counting considering uh both the in-breath and the out-breath is one round one mentally comes counts rather from one up to ten keeping the counting free from the three faults <laughs> which is that the faults are uh, confusion excess and omission if one counts fewer than ten the great danger is that laxity might arise <laughs> ten is the magic number if one counts more than ten the greater danger is excitation if one happens to count two rounds is one that's the fault of omission if one counts one round is two that is the fault of excess and if one counts the in-breath and uh, takes the in-breath to be the out-breath or the out-breath the in-breath is the fault of confusion and immediately you have to uh, go back to uh, pass you do not pass go what does it say you go back home and you do not pass go or something like that right? with regard to monitoring second aspect counting then monitoring when the breath flows in it enters in the following order the throat the heart the center the navel the groin the thighs the calves the soles of the feet into the ground as deep as one arm span if it's more powerful and as deep as one hand span if it's less powerful that's pretty trippy huh the breath came in and went all the way through the body and down into the ground <laughs> okay when the breath flows out, it leaves from the soles of the feet and so on, right up until it's exhaled through the nostrils, from the nostrils, as far as one arm span. If it's more powerful, and as far as one hand span, span rather, if it's less powerful, one's mind views this single-pointedly, without distraction. Next, with regard to fixing, the breath is present from the tip of the nose to the soles of the feet like a great garland. One's mind views this single-pointedly without distraction and cognizes whether the body is benefited or harmed, whether it is made warmer or cooler. And by the way, I said that this was like an important scheme that was used in many traditions and that I felt sort of uh, was the framework for the Tibetan tradition's use of breathing. This presentation is highly unusual. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, there's other most other presentations don't have all this weird stuff that's very unusual um 
Further, with regard to investigating one thinks these in-breaths and out-breaths are not merely wind, but are in the nature of the eight physical substances that are the four elements in their respective derivatives, together with the mind, the mental factors based on them, I possess the five aggregates. So one investigates and views the single point. What happened in this step four? Anyone? What happened in step four? No breath. No breath. Say again, Barbara? Vipassana. Vipassana. All of a sudden we're doing Vipassana. Thank you. We went from Shamata to Vipassana. These in-breaths and out-breaths are not merely wind, but are in the nature of the eight substances. So investigation. It's very cool. Then five, with regard to transforming. The mind that focuses on the breath transforms from within single point in mindfulness and that it trains in increasing virtue. That's a very vague description. But... Uh, Maybe after this class, I'll share with you some other versions of these six, you see. And uh, please, uh, if someone can remind me if, if you don't get it soon, because it's fascinating, I think. Six, finally, with regard to purifying the mind from within, from within single-pointed mindfulness, trains in increasing virtue more than before. Purifying. So, described differently, as I said, in other versions. Treasury says, auto-commentary says, mindfulness, the in-breath and the out-breath is said to have six aspects, counting, monitoring, fixing, investigating, transforming, and purifying. Mindfulness following the inflow and outflow of the breath focuses on one meditation object and experiences what is internal, and since the breath that is the base of the meditation object has no color and shape, it can function as an antidote to conceptualization. Conversely, a mind meditating on unattractiveness focuses on, on such objects as colors, and skeletons experiencing what is external this induced conceptualization so it cannot function as an antidote to conceptualization. Treasury Auto Commentary says, those prone to conceptualization should engage in mindfulness of the inflow and the outflow of the breath. What do they say? Uh, ipso facto or something like that? There you have it. Why we're, we in the, in the West are all given breath meditation. We're running short of time, so I'm going to skip through mindfulness of feeling, mind of phenomena, ways to meditate, the way to meditate in the application of mindfulness guardian feelings is as follows. One meditates on feelings by examining their specific general characteristics. Again, the two types to see the faults of feelings, such as how pleasant feelings directly give rise to craving for more pleasant feelings, such as the desirable and unpleasant feelings, directly give rise to craving for cessation, and how they indirectly give rise to suffering, and so on. And a quote from the Ranachuda Sutra, where uh, the, the Sutra, I got to find the Sutra, presents in detail the Mahayana version of these four uh, applications, rather, of mindfulness, interestingly, and uh, in, this, in the way that's being presented here. Skipping the quote, the way to meditate in the application of mindfulness regarding the mind entails examining the essential nature of mind by observing how it ceases moment to moment, how it cannot be shown, how it's unobstructive, how it is in the nature of clear light, how from the point of view of its continuum it stays con constantly without any interruption, and so on. That part was a little odd. It's supposed to be showing impermanence, and yet it says it stays constantly without any interruption. The Kashipa chapter sutra, which is 
a chapter. It's called a chapter because it's one of the 49 sutras in the Ratnakuta section of the collection of sutras. It's the Ratnakuta collection. And it has 49 sutras within it, including one called the Ratnakuta Sutra, which makes it doubly confusing. But uh, this one's called the Kashapa chapter. Kashapa, mind is like continuous waterfall that does not remain still, but dissolves upon arising. Mind is like the wind, etc., etc. In this way, based on learning and reflection, so on and when analyzed, investigates both specific and general characteristics of the mind's function, the faults that occur, we occur under the power of the mental afflictions, and so on. And uh, the quote pretty much sums that up. Uses some neat uh, imagery. Right, since the mind dis dissipates all roots of virtues like a house of sand, since the mind discerns impermanence as permanence like a dewdrop, since the mind discerns suffering as happiness, it's like a fish hook. I like that one. Uh, since the mind discerns the selfless as self, it's like a dream, and since the mind discerns the impure as pure, it's like a fly. What's that analogy? Flies to shit. Uh, since the mind has uh, caused many types of harm, it's like an adversary to ourselves. The mind causes us harm. To maintain the application of mindfulness regarding phenomena or dharmas entails analyzing, investigating, based on learning, and so on. What are to be abandoned? False, such attachment, hatred, and what are to be adopted? Good qualities, such as love, such as love and compassion from, from among all the various mental factors, associated conditioning factors, other than feelings. Quoting from that same sutra, pretty much uh, just expands on that. In brief, skipping that quote, in brief, one should meditate with mindfulness, contemplating internal and external bodies being pure as an antidote to apprehending the body's pure. And with mindfulness, contemplating internal and external feelings to be suffering as an antidote to apprehending contaminated, contaminated feelings as blissful. Contaminated feelings. Right? These are the marks of existence. All contaminated phenomena are suffering. Um, with mindfulness contemplating internal external minds to be momentary as an antidote to apprehending the mind is permanent. With mindfulness contemplating all external and inter internal external phenomena to be selfless as an antidote to apprehending mind phenomena as possessing selfhood. Which one of these has become the chosen favorite object for uh, Mahamudra meditation and, and Dzogchen meditation? Which object? And time's up. You only have four choices. Uh, Mary Beth is pointing to her body. No, she's pointing to her mind. The last her, one? She was pointing to her brain. And, and oh, the mind. Yeah, the third one. Mind, exactly. So everything focuses on the mind, right? Just analyzing the nature of the mind. Interestingly. Um, also, one should meditate on love as an antidote to behavior with the pronouns of hatred and, and dependent arising as an antidote to being largely enveloped in obscuration on the extensive categories of the elements as an antidote to predominance of pride. And these are the six main types of object that we saw at the beginning of the chapter on the calm abiding. When meditating on the impurities of the body and so on, it's essential to apply antidotes such as aspiration against faults like laziness. And uh, the quote from the compendium that goes through a whole bunch of different good qualities to cultivate to support the meditation. 
practice and then skipping that the fruits of mindfulness meditation um the fruits of meditating the permanence of the body so on as stated in the questions of rana chuda this guy has a lot of questions jeez he's got his own fa faq right the ratnakuda faq uh what has the nature and permanence this body is impermanent doesn't remain long and uh Okay, let's go. Through. What has the character of impermanence? Uh, last, this body is impermanent. Doesn't remain long, dies in the end. Knowing this truth, the Bodhisattva does not engage in inappropriate livelihood for the sake of the body. Livelihood? Hmm. <laughs> for the sake of the body, but extracts the essence of this bodily essence. One extracts three types of essence. They are the essence of the body, the essence of resource, and the essence of livelihood. With the thought this body is impure, permanent, the Bodhisattva pledges to be a servant and student all beings to do whatever needs to be done, thinking the body is impermanent. One does not indulge in the faulty contact of the body, the guilt, uh, sorry, the guile and the hypocrisy, thinking this body is impermanent. One becomes less concerned about one's own life and commits no evil, not even to save his own life, thinking the body is impermanent. One does not indulge in craving and attachment to resources, for one gives away all one's possessions. This is These are the, the fruits of mindfulness meditation, so be careful. If you practice mindfulness, you may end up giving away all of your possessions and letting people kill you. Uh, let's say the quote is pretty much sums things up. So let's skip that. Okay, so then we skip the eight worldly concerns, which is a fascinating chapter, but uh, it's not that unusual for, in terms of our... Uh, uh, Shadra sort of uh, foundation. Chapter 28, Increasing Good Qualities, so we skip, and then we go to the short little chapter and the concluding topic, the person or the self. So to go just a few minutes late, we'll go through this quickly. In the first two volumes of this series, we've uh, organized the account of reality found in the text of grading the Buddhist masters into five main topics. The first, the account of the objects of knowledge that was examined in volume one here and volume two we examined. Uh, the second topic, which is the account of the mind is the subject that knows them. The third, which is how the mind engages its object. And the fourth topic, which concerns the methods that may be used by the mind to engage objects in this last topic, we included associated ancillary topics. Now in this short concluding session, we shall briefly discuss the fifth topic, the person, a cognizer of objects in the context of inquiry into how the mind engages its objects, as well as how it experiences pleasure, pain, and so on. The classical Indian philosopher examined whether there exists some entity that is the knower or the experiencer, such as the self or the person. Likewise, since everyday experience confirms that the sense of I emerges naturally, the question arises as to what exactly is the object of the thought I am. Questions such as these were addressed extensively by the early thinkers. We will discuss these matters in detail in Volume 4, but here we address them briefly. In general, we must posit the notion of a person who is the experiencer of pleasure and pain. One might ask, is such a person or self either the body or the mind or something separate? The way it appears to one's ordinary cognition when one says, I saw this flower, the thought occurs in one's mind that I see it, even though it is a visual cognition that actually does the scene. Similarly, 
when the body is sick or when the mind is sad, one has the thoughts, I am sick or I am sad, even so one does not have the attitude that the body or the mind is oneself. Likewise, when one says my body or my mind, what appears to the mind is something like a separate I that is the controller of the body and mind, or that is the owner of the body and the mind. Thus, the non-Buddhist Indian schools of the past assert that the self is something entirely separate from the psychophysical constituents or aggregates in contrast. The Buddhists maintain that what is called the self or the person is imputed in dependence on the collection of both the body and the mind, and therefore it is the same individual entity as the physical and mental aggregates and that they cannot exist apart from each other, but they are not identical. What kind of thing then is this creature called the self, except for Buddhists? Most religious traditions believe the essential nature of the self to be permanent, unitarian, independent. Buddhists assert that there is no such permanent, unitarian, independent self, but they accept a mere self that exists in dependence on the aggregates. This is the Kalupa way of talking about the self. Sutra in the Theravada scripture says, just we refer to a chariot based on the group of parts, so based on the aggregates, we have the convention, sentient being. They didn't use the word self, by the way. Just as a chariot is imputed in dependence on the assembly of the chariot's parts, and to posit the entity of the chariot, there's no need for anything beyond the assembly of its parts. Likewise, self or person merely is posited, uh, merely posited in dependence on the space of imputation, the aggregates, and there's no need for anything beyond the basis for imputation, which in terms of the self is the aggregates. Thus, according to Buddhist scriptures, the term selflessness refers to the absence of a self that is independent and separate from the aggregates. However, in a more general sense, Buddhists do not deny that there is a self conventionally posited as an agent that comes and goes and so on, and that is the experiencer of pleasure and pain. <laughs> so, conventionally, we accept the self, according to this tradition. Now, if there is no autonomous self separate from the aggregates of body and mind that owns and controls the body and mind, this raises many problems. How can all of a person's earlier and later experiences be, be posited as the experiences of one person? How can memory arise within a specific individual who, in relation to previous experiences, later thinks, I saw that, <laughs> I, I saw that, I did that? <laughs> is the separateness of persons having different mind streams defined exclusively in terms of the separateness of their physical bodies? These critical questions will be examined in volume four. Just to leave you in suspense, damn, I got us all excited about this. At this point, one might wonder why we have this little teaser. No, sorry. I wonder whether such a person herself has a beginning. Those who believe in a creator of the universe maintain that the self does have a beginning for those who do not believe in such a creator, such as Buddhists who assert that the external world and beings within arise purely in dependence on their own causing conditions. The existence or non-existence of a beginning to the self is a question of whether the aggregates, the designative basis of the self, have a beginning. This is because for Buddhists, the self is imputed upon those aggregates from among the five aggregates that are based on imputation of the person. If we take the consciousness aggregate as an example, what is referred to as consciousness or mind is something that is the nature of mere inner experience, which does not exist as material and is not characterized by color, shape, and so on. The substantial cause of a phenomena that is merely in the nature of subjective experience must be of a similar kind as itself. 
thus one cannot posit subtle physical particles to be the substantial cause of consciousness. If one were to trace the prior moments in the continuum of consciousness in general and subtle levels of mental consciousness in particular, there is no beginning. We already discussed why this is so in our brief presentation of past and future lives, an ancillary issue raised in the context of the conditions for consciousness. Since one cannot posit a beginning to consciousness, Buddhists maintain that one can also, also cannot posit a beginning to a self that is imputed on dependence of the consciousness. As for whether there is a final end to the self, the world's religious traditions have different divergent views among the Buddhists. Some accept, this, accept that the self has an end. However, Mayana Buddhist schools maintain that since consciousness has neither beginning nor end, the imputed self also has neither beginning nor end. The definition of person is a living being that is imputed in dependence on any of the five aggregates. In general, the terms self, I, and person are synonymous in that they are alternative names for one and the same thing. <laughs> Although there's only one I for the continuum of a single person, such as David Dutta, <laughs> our favorite I. Many parts of I may be posited for that same person. In the case of the monk David Dada, for example, the thought I can arise in relation to specific parts of him, such as his being a human being, a man, an ordained monk, and just as he has different aspects to his personal identity. Uh, so too for other people, many parts of I can be posited. Also, the identity of human being is defined primarily in the basis of an assembly of aggregates that constitute a human body. An animal is defined in dependence on an assembly of aggregates that constitute the body of such an animal. In the case of a human being, also, based on different attributes of the aggregates, one can speak of a being as, uh, one can speak of being a male or a female, large or small, clever or foolish, and so on. So for other terms for the self or person, the teachings of Akshaya Mati Sutra, famous middle turning sutra, says the sutras that speak about self, about sentient being, living, being nourished, being created, creature, person, vital, being able, being agent, experiencer, that speak by way of using such diverse terms and indicate there to be an owner, even though there is no owner. These are provisional in their meaning. The meaning of these terms may be understood from the compendium of enumerations, which is one of the uh, baskets of the Pali canon, I believe. Self is posited in terms of viewing the five aggregates of appropriation of the self or as belonging to the self sentient being is posited in terms of not knowing existent phenomena as they really are and being attached to them. Sentient beings are ignorant of what uh, phenomena really are. Vital being is positive in terms of an aspect of mental cognition. Able being is positive in terms of becoming elevated or debased in relation to pride. Nourished being is positive in terms of whether you've eaten dinner or not. Uh, expanding due to the path of cyclic existence recurring. Creature is positive in terms of the swamp that one crawled out of. Person is positive in terms of being dissatisfied and discontented with transmigrating again and again. Living being is positive in terms of being alive and staying alive. That's a song, right? When it was born is posited in terms of being a phenomena that arises from causes and conditions. As for the Buddhist non-Buddhist, <coughs> excuse me, non-Buddhist views on the self as well as the proofs associated them. 
again, these will all be explained extensively in volume four. The present work we've assembled within a single collection of many important subjects sourced from the word of the Buddha, especially from the texts of great ancient Indian Buddhist thinkers, extant in Tibetan translations that pertain to accounts of reality and profound philosophical views. We have organized these presentations into a specific order and have provided accompanying commentarial explanations. And this completes the volumes presenting science from the series called that's an odd phrase. This completes the volumes presenting. Anyway, anyway, it's the end of the book. <laughs> we made it to the end. Comments, questions, thoughts, um, aspirations, summer plans. I have a issue with all the relations to the body. To me, it seems like like we, because there's no self and that mind is has it's hard to find it you know where stuff's going we have all these great analogies but then when it comes to the body it seems like we're just placing analogies on the out breath means this the in breath means that and i don't know the body just seems to work it's like a little bit they hint at it. like it's separate it's just doing its body thing and we're just placing maybe helpful analogies to calm our minds but to me they seem like they're analogies hmm. anyone else thoughts about that i think we call that the psychosomatic body that's neat yeah i'm she called it that yeah and that's true we're never really experiencing our body. We're just experiencing the ideas that we have of our body, our breath. Yeah. It's sort of a weird revelation, isn't it? It's like we live in this mentally created world. And yet the body is so close and it's like so far at the same time, the real body. <laughs> what else? Anyone else? Personally, I, I don't think I would ever want to do those things with the skeletons and all. It just seems like torture, torturing yourself. <laughs> that is so that. weird, isn't it? No, I, Even on Halloween, you wouldn't want to do that? I envision oh. a bunch of skulls without any <laughs> tops because they've all been cut off for skull caps holding Anne Marita. <laughs> So I see a bunch of skulls walking around. Like, where's my top? Somebody's top. <laughs> I, I did have one question. Since we're talking about the skeleton section, I did have one question that came up when they said that one of, it seemed like they were saying that one of the reasons for using the skeleton to meditate on was because it did not have the four bases of attachment. And I thought that was kind of odd because if I'm not if I'm understanding that correctly, the bases are color, shape, and stuff like that, right? Yeah, it does have color and shape. And so a, a skeleton has a color; it has a shape. That seemed like a really weird thing to say. Well, they they characterize it as attractive color and attractive shape. Well, in which case they should say that because otherwise they're just saying something that sounds. 
Well, in one place they said it endlessly over and over again, but yeah. The, in this the particular place that I noticed it, it I guess. Yeah, sorry. It was didn't say it. around yeah, that's, 534, that's I think it was. Oh, I'm sorry. That's on my version. Right, but, right. Um, anyway. It just struck me as, it, it totally confused me at that moment. When I read that, I said, what, what did they mean? Yeah. I mean, I understand. Overall, I understood, okay, it doesn't have the attractive curves or the, you know, all the, whatever, the sensual attractiveness of regular bodies, but they should be more precise about that, I think. <laughs> I so when agree. You put the list we of should complaints, add that add to that the one. list. <laughs> and add it to the list of complaints. I suddenly have this image of like, isn't there this graphic of like dancing skeletons with top hats and like sticks, you know, and they're sort of graceful and they're tap dancing and. <laughs> I might have one of those actually. I think Michelle may have sent a nice skeleton somewhere. I don't know if I can find it. <laughs> it became, uh, it might be like a Grateful Dead type image. That kind of thing. Yeah, there's there's lots of those. I don't know where I have it though. If Grateful Dead were secretly into skeleton meditation and that's why they used all the skeleton imagery. Can't you tell my nose is getting longer? <laughs> my Pinocchio nose. In other words, just kidding. Anyway, thank you all very much. And uh, so, I don't know. Um, you know, I told you about this course on a text by Mipom called The Lion's Roar. And uh, I've been trying to go through this text and like create an outline for it. And I've been failing. <laughs> You have a little and, time though, right? Uh, not that much. <laughs> and so I don't know, we may delay that course and have the entire summer off. Um, now you but said something about you need our mailing address? Yeah, if you want a, if you want a complimentary copy, please just give me your mailing address. I got it from a few people. So if you want a copy, please give me your address and I'd be happy to say I bought I bought a bunch of copies from the uh, translation committee. So thank you so much for that. Please let me show yeah. my appreciation you for you guys for going through all this material. I'm really psyched that you're doing it. So one way or another, whether that happens or not, in, in the fall, we'll do the uh, third volume of this series, which goes through the tenets of the various schools, along with um, I'm hoping to, uh, my planning rather, to use a text by Mipam Rimshe that goes through the tenets of the different schools to show a slightly different take on the tenets from a, a Nigma point of view as opposed to the Galupa point of view that's involved here. And um, it's translated by a gentleman named Douglas Duckworth, which is an odd name, okay, but he's a, a wonderful scholar. He's done a huge amount of work on Mipom, for which I and many others are very grateful. And it's in a book, and it's printed in very small print. And so one of my goals for the summer is to convert that into Word, and I need uh, helpers with that. And so I will solicit you, but if you're willing to help, I'll split it up into pieces, and we can all do a little bit, or a few of us do a little bit of that. That would be great, so that we can then make it nice and readable to so accompany this, us a, a new book because what was the life of me palm or something i know I, we didn't do it's it in different class, but i i got that one 
And yeah, I it's not in that one. I, I, I have it in PDF form, thanks to my buddy, uh, Mary Beth there. And uh, anyway, so that's a project for the summer and we'll use that in the fall. So we have the Glugpa version and then the Mipom version is uh, uh, more pithy. It's like one of the, the root texts, you know, uh, each of these topics has like a, a various schools or shaders would have a root text. And we saw this with the Dudra collected topics. We saw the Nintarta version of the root text that are very short and pithy, just like definitions and Mipom's text is, is more like that. It's a, it's like a root text version of the tenets, whereas these books are expository, commentated, com commentarial versions of what's of the material that's contained in those texts plus related topics anyways they're not perfect and they have some weird stuff in them as we saw but they're better than nothing and uh, they seem to be better than anything else out there so for the time being they're a very good way of going through this material and and then once you've gone through, basically, once you've gone through one version of them, you will then have the sophistication to understand the nuances of different views on the same on those topics and issues when you when and as you encounter them in other literature. And uh, it will help you understand the uh, other literature much more deeply, the great texts on Madhyamaka and so forth. So thank you for persisting and going through this material and thank you for uh, attending this one and uh, have a wonderful summer if I don't see you otherwise and uh, have a wonderful summer I'll see you all on the airwaves of email I'm sure so let's dedicate the merit uh, by this merit may all obtain omniscience may defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy ways of birth old age sickness and death from the ocean of samsara may i free all beings by the confidence of the golden sun of the great east may the lotus garden of the rigdon's wisdom bloom may the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled may all beings enjoy profound brilliant glory thank you Take care. Be Thank well. you. Happy, Thank you. Happy yeah. July 4th. I won't see you before July 4th one way or another. Happy July 4th. Take care. Bye. Bye, Derek. Thank you.